Hey everyone and welcome back to The Leadership Project with your host Mick Spears. We bring you thought-provoking guests and topics every week to challenge your thinking about leadership. Our aim is to help you become the leader that you wish you always had as we learn together and lead together. Hey everyone, welcome back to The Leadership Project with your host Mick Spears. Our vision is to inspire all leaders to challenge the status quo. We bring you weekly topics and thought-provoking guests to get you to stop, reflect and think about what it means to be a leader in a modern world. Our aim is to help you become the leader you wish you always had as we learn together and lead together. Please enjoy the show. Hey everyone and welcome back to The Leadership Project, where our vision is to inspire all leaders to challenge the status quo. We are always looking for inspirational people to come on the show and share their thoughts about new topics and we're greatly honoured today to be joined by Zach Mercuria. Zach is a keynote speaker, a consultant and a researcher with a specialisation on purposeful leadership which people that regularly listen to the show will know something that this is something that we are very, very passionate about. He researches purposeful leadership, meaningful work, and what it means to actually matter with a view towards positive organizational development. He's also the best-selling author of a book called The Invisible Leader, and that is part of what we will talk about as we go through today. He has a PhD in organizational learning, performance and change, and he's an honorary fellow at Colorado State University. It's a great pleasure to have Zach with us today. Zach, please say hello to our audience and tell us a little bit more about your background and what led you to be with us today. Thanks, Mick. Thanks for having me. Like many people, I think, who study meaningfulness and purpose, it's not something in a course catalog when you're an undergraduate that you can kind of pick out. Many of us have had awakenings of some kind, some sort of spark. And for me, that spark came in my first job out of college. I I was lucky enough to have a job in advertising where I got paid well. And on the outside, I was successful. But on the inside, I felt... Like I did not matter. I, I couldn't see the significance of what I was doing. And I was around people that would come into work and they'd say on Monday, is it the weekend yet? Um, and I was just astounded how many people were living for two sevenths of their lives, the days that begin with the letter S. And I remember I actually went into, and I haven't really told anybody this, but I went into a bookstore in Washington, DC during a lunch break. And I saw this poem by the American poet, uh, Stephen Dunn. And I don't even read poetry. It was on an end cap in the bookstore. And I picked it up and there was this poem called Everything Else in the World. And the last line was, I want a job so good, like a book, I'll be finishing it for the rest of my life. And I thought to myself, you know, why, why am I doing what I'm doing? Why am I as a person? Who am I? 
and along the way, once I had that realization, I started meeting people who do ordinary things with an extraordinary perspective, whether it was a joyful cab driver, a bus driver who had a firm sense of purpose or um, someone who was cleaning the streets that I talked to that exuded joy. They talked about their contribution. And after that moment, I went into researching and working with people on how to develop a purposeful perspective in their work and in their lives so that really people didn't end up like me without that uh, firm sense of, of questioning of who, who are, am I? Why am I? Before I figure out the form of my life, my job or my career, or as I'm in that form of my life, can I ask about my function, right? In good design, form typically follows function, but the way we develop our lives and organizations is we typically say that we should know our form, our career, our job, what we're doing before we understand our function, why we are. And so that's the mission I've been on through research, consulting, uh, just like you've said, writing about this and trying it myself. I love that, Zach. And there's many things there that I know that we're going to explore during the interview today. One of the ones I want to pick on there is you said that you were successful on the outside, but not necessarily successful on the inside. And I'm going to come back to you later about what your definition is of success. I like what you're saying about people in all walks of life, taxi drivers, uh, restaurant workers, anyone can find meaningful purpose in life if they look for it and, and they understand who they are. But what was most impactful of what you said is why they are. So let's unpack that a little bit further. Why are you who you are, Zach? Well, it's taken me almost a decade of exploration. So I never want to, especially on a podcast, give the air that this is just easy, magical work, right? That, that you listen to a podcast and find your purpose. I also don't believe that purpose is out there waiting to be found. I think it's right where you are waiting to be acknowledged. And that's why I think purpose is crafted over time. Uh, the way I define purpose is it's where your unique gifts make a unique difference, where your strengths make a unique impact. So everybody listening, do you have strengths? Yes. Do you impact people? Yes. You have purpose. Uh, it's a matter of how we see the world versus what we see when it comes to experiencing meaningfulness. And for me, I'm the youngest of three brothers. And I was predisposed to search for significance because when you're the youngest, you get really good at either entertaining yourself or comparing yourself to other people. So I was always trying to measure up and I became very susceptible to looking for significance through outward signals. Like if I get this good grade, then I'll be successful. If I get this job, then I'll be successful. If I'm in this sport, then I'll be successful, right? And the problem, as you alluded to, that I learned very early on in my life, luckily, was that when you hinge your identity or significance on something you can achieve or acquire, there's always the propensity that you won't be able to achieve or acquire or do that thing anymore. And so too goes your sense of self. And so my susceptibility to that led me into that advertising job and has led me into my work now. But what I really think my work is all about now, after reflecting on what my five-year-old self most needed, it's to help people realize their inevitable significance. 
to help people see their significance now that what they do matters, that they have unique gifts that make a unique impact. That if we saw the world through the lens of not what am I going to do with my life or what should I do with my life, but what should my life do for others, uh, that that shift can awaken our, our own significance. So that's, that's where I am right now. It's almost like who that five-year-old youngest sibling needed to get out of that cycle of chasing significance through things is what I'm trying to do for other people and as a collective for organizations, companies, and communities. I'm hearing several things there, Zach, that are all very interesting to me. And congratulations on your success, on your personal success of finding that awareness of why you are. I think that's the most important one to acknowledge. And clearly you've been successful in your vision and your purpose as well. So, and we'll talk about that as we go along. The things that were really interesting in what I was hearing, Zach, about that five-year-old self and as you grew up, many of the things that you described were external validation and then goal attainment of tangible things. But then once you reach that goal, then what then? Whereas what I'm hearing in everything that you're saying, all the way back to your description of the person you going into the bookshop and reading that poem, it's actually about something that is somewhat unattainable. The purpose is something that is, has momentum and continues forever. What's your reflection on that? Yeah, the problem with being motivated by a result is precisely the fact that you can achieve it. And as you say, then what? Most of us, I would say, live in an if-then argument. We don't even know it. You know, it's also been called destination addiction. That we will be worthy once we get this job. We will, once we get the quarterly earnings up, we'll be successful as a company, right? And it's a roller coaster because you, and in psychology, we call it the arrival fallacy that your brain actually experiences the same thing, whether you achieve a goal or not. It's why if you watch the Olympics this summer, one of the biggest mental health issues facing Olympians is a diagnosable psychiatric condition called the Olympics blues. And what's that? That's a arrival fallacy that if I achieve a goal, what now? If I don't achieve a goal, what now? Now, the only thing we have control over every day has one thing in common regardless of what we achieve or what we don't achieve. And that's the ability to contribute. So that's why a sense of contribution and focusing on contribution lasts much longer than focusing on an achievement because achievements come and go. The ability to contribute to a human being is mostly available every single day. And that's powerful stuff right there. So once again, we're moving from kind of the goal attainment through to something that you can renew every day. So you can wake up every morning with what can I do to contribute to others today? That's very powerful stuff. And therefore having a purpose that has a, almost a momentum of itself that's a, a perpetual motion machine because you're, you're out there always seeking that purpose as opposed to achieving a goal. Interesting. Yeah. Imagine, you know, if you imagine like, let's take, for example, the modern conceptualization of a career and you ask the question, what should I do? So what should I do next in five years? What inevitably happens is you actually narrow your options as you progress in that because you get a certain skill set, 
You get certain boundaries of what you can do, where you can do it. Versus if you asked about your career, what kinds of problems do I want to use my strengths to solve? All of a sudden, the window opens, attention opens, possibilities expand because you're not tied to like a particular job or a career to contribute with your strengths. You're tied to using your strengths to solve human problems. The jobs, organizations, careers become mere delivery systems of your contribution versus your identification. And it's a much more sustainable way of experiencing sustained energy. And like you said, that a purpose almost exerts a pulling force on our lives, whereas results and achievements push us for the short term. Um, and so I liken it to like basic physics of, you know, when you're stuck on the side of the road, you don't call a pull, uh, to push truck to push, push your car out of the ditch, right? You call a tow truck because physically it's easier to lift something and pull it than it is to push something. And the same is true when it comes to the psychological effect of having a bigger purpose outside of ourselves pulling us forward versus relying on results to push us because we'll always be reliant on the push. Yeah, I'm loving this analogy of the of the, the pulling nature and also the the tow truck that's going to uh, yeah, pull, pull yeah, you out of yeah. trouble. I love I love that. You also have now used the word strengths multiple times. In a very short period of time, in fact, you were really focusing in on self-awareness about how your strengths can make meaningful impact. Tell us more about that. One of the exercises I've done with people, I think over 10,000 now, is helping them write a purpose statement that takes their strengths, which is the intersection between what you love, what energizes you. These are the things that if I were to interrupt you doing it, you'd be pretty mad at me because I interrupted you, right? Those are the things that you love to do. But it's where the, that love, that energy intersects with your talents, the things that you're good at. So these are the kind of the things that I might ask you to do. Uh, you may not love to do it, but I may ask you to do it and you're good at it. I mean, it's just something you're good to do, uh, good at. Other people ask you to do it. And it's where you can find the intersection of what you love to do and what you're good at that we get this concept of a psychological strength. Now, there's been research in almost every uh, culture through uh, this program called Character Strengths that find that the chances of you and I having the same set of five character top strength is like one in seven million or something. So the unique combination of our gifts is like our fingerprint. But let's add on to that, right? The uniqueness of where and how our gifts impact other people is like our true fingerprint. And that's what gives directionality to strengths and what creates that sense of purpose. What is my unique resources, my strengths, the intersection of my passions and my talents, and how are those impacting the people? And I, I don't necessarily think about it as a big cause, but in, in impacting the people that I'm going to talk to today. And that, that's purpose, in my view. I love this as well. So um, I've got this picture in my head of uh, pretty much a Venn diagram of what do I love? What am I good at? And how can those two intersect to create meaningful impact on the world, but contributing to others? It's a really great picture that you're, that you're painting there. Uh, Zach, thank you for that. We spoke before about external validation versus 
more internal. So, and you were speaking about success in that regard. What does success mean to you now? I don't know where to attribute this quote. I read it in the founder of Tom's shoe company, Blake Mykoski's book, Start Something That Matters. And it really resonated with me. And it was a better way of articulating it than I've ever articulated it. And it's that success is finding a meaningful need and filling it better than anybody else. So what I mean by that is what the way I take that is finding a meaningful need around you today and using your gift. That's the better when you can use your gifts to fill it differently than anybody else. And, and I still think that that's, that's success. Success is how do we fill the space around us? Viktor Frankl, who's the author of Man's Search for Meaning. And then he was also a concentration camp survivor and a psychiatrist. And he just published, a, he didn't publish it, Daniel Goleman published an unpublished series of lectures called Yes to Life in a new book. And I highly recommend it. But he said, um, you know, our meaning in life, and he uses meaning and purpose interchangeably, but he says our meaning in life is how we fill the circle we're in. So how we fill out the human needs that are around us today. And he recounts the story of a tailor's assistant coming up to him after a lecture and says, Dr. Frankel, I love your lectures on the meaning in life, but I'm just a tailor's assistant. And he asked him, he goes, how have you impacted and thought about your impact on the people that have come into that tailor shop? Tell me about that. And that young tailor was so obsessed with being anywhere, but where he was in that moment that he wasn't filling out the meaning of his life. And so that's what I believe. It's how we fill the circle around us with our strengths. That's really impactful as well, Zach. I, I love this. And I think that's when, you know, I, I'm, I think this was in something that I read from you as well. And you were talking before about people that arrive at a job on Monday and go, I can't wait for the weekend. Surely if we can find that intersection between what we love, what we're good at and creating meaningful purpose, then we start looking forward to Monday and we start spending up to one third of our life in a job that we love instead of something that we're looking forward to the weekend. Yeah, love this. Now, I will want to add one nuance to that, if you don't mm. mind. Yeah, please. You can make the job you have the job you love as well. So there, and what I mean by that is that one of my research studies is with university cleaners, uh, so janitors. Not one of them I interviewed for that study on meaningfulness said that they were born to be a janitor. You know, it was the exact intersection of their ilkajai or whatever it is, their purpose. Every one of them experienced meaningfulness in their job. So one of the things that I know that we can do and, and research indicates that we can do, and it's called job crafting, is that how can you use your strengths, your passions, and your talents to make an impact where you are. That's also purpose. So I believe that if, you're, if you don't learn how to uncover purpose where you are, it's very difficult to uncover it where you want to go. Uh, and so there is a skill and there's a big difference between just having purpose and being purposeful. So if purpose is your contribution, then being purposeful is contribution, thinking, being, and doing. And that's accessible as Viktor Frankl, who was that concentration camp prisoner and survivor, uh, I think most blatantly displays is accessible wherever you are. 
So what we're talking about now. Is so like, I just want to make that nuance. Yeah, no, I love that. This. It's not a job. It's not a dream job. It's yes. it's a skill set. It's a way of seeing. And what we're talking about now is reframing your perspective on what you already do is what I'm hearing from you there. And if you stop, let me play this to you and see what you think. You stop and take a, take a step back for a second and ask yourself these questions. With what I do, how does it help others? Question one. Question two, if I stopped doing it, what would happen? Question three, if I did more of it or I did it better, what would be the positive impact of that? What's your reflection on that for reframing what you do today? What I love about that is that the questions we ask ourselves determine what we think about. The internal questions we ask ourselves determine our life's answer to those questions. Our lives are almost answers to the questions we ask ourselves. So I love that. And one of the questions I ask people all the time is, think about the thing you dislike most in your job. And they all grumble and think about something. And then I say, what would happen to a human being if you did not do it? And all of a sudden, purpose shows up. And purpose is not always pleasurable. That's a big misnomer. Purpose is not always pleasurable, right? Um, One of the janitors that I interviewed in my study, I asked her what was the most meaningful part of your job. And she started telling me about cleaning the toilets on Monday mornings in the university dormitories. Now think about that after the weekend. It doesn't sound pleasant. So I was a little bit surprised. But she said, every time I go in and do that task, I say to myself, I'm doing this so that these kids don't get sick. Ah, that so that mentality, right? That's a skill set. She had honed it to be able to use this non-pleasurable task and make it meaningful. And actually what we find in the research on meaningfulness and purpose, especially in work, is that experiencing purpose has less to do with what you're doing and more to do with your approach to what you're doing and your mindset about it. This is obviously very difficult for some people to grasp when they're like, I just need a new job. But it's, it's how I view purpose as a skill as well. And one skill is telling yourself better stories. And as you articulate it really well, asking yourself better questions. Mm, that's great, Zach. I want to pivot that now because we spoke about it doesn't always mean pleasure. But you do speak about happiness. Share with us what the happiness trifecta of neurotransmitters are. Oh, yeah. So. UCLA, at UCLA Semmel Center for Neuroscience, they actually found a part of our brain, I can't name it off the top of my head because I'm not a neuroscientist, but they found a part of our brain that seems hardwired for contribution. And it's really not surprising, right? I mean, any organism that ceases to contribute dies. And so it's not surprising that as human beings, we flourish because we're wired for purpose to contribute. That's why I say purpose isn't a trend. It's a basic, essential quality of you and I and humans. But what they found is that your brain actually rewards you when you are focusing on your contribution. It's one of the actually most significant predictors of this happiness trifecta of dopamine, serotonin, and oxytocin. And these are the neurotransmitters that control for social connection. They also control for mood. They control for movement and they control for motivation. And so one of the prime ways to experience happiness as a resultant condition, is to focus on how we're contributing. And that's why I think happiness is something that 
does you can't pursue it must it follows right it follows meaningfulness and purpose and i'll actually go i don't really like happiness all that much uh, well i like happiness but i i would rather talk about joy because joy is happiness that's been liberated from circumstance what we know about happiness is that happiness is that feeling of pleasure that comes usually when we're doing the thing that makes us happy. Joy is the feeling of having those happiness trifecta neurotransmitters moving through us in circumstances that don't necessarily give us pleasure, but we can still experience joy. This is interesting. And and this is some of the stuff that I've heard Martin Seligman talk about. It, it wasn't actually his, yes, yes. It wasn't actually his research. It was someone else's that he built upon. I've got to remember who the other person was now. But the pursuit of pleasure versus the pursuit of joy, two different things. Yes, two different things. And people confuse in the word happiness. Some people use happiness actually correctly and associate it with the properties of joy. Some people associate happiness. I want to be happy. Uh, like I want to go to a concert to be happy, but when the concert's over, you lose the happiness. So it's actually pleasure that you're seeking. And so that's a very important distinction you made. And think about the world we live in today. Many people seek pleasure. They seek pleasure through immersion in social media or et cetera. Yeah. But it has a very short half-life. More than that, it has a decreasing half-life. So the more you seek pleasure, the more stimulation you need to achieve the same level of pleasure. And this is why people are finding themselves increasingly immersed in social media, because to get that dopamine hit of pleasure, they need to have more stimulation to achieve the same result that they used to. It's quite addictive. Pleasure is addictive. Whereas joy is something that is continual. And if you can find those paths to joy where you achieve it, you'll find that you are happy more often than not, as opposed to the roller coaster of seeking what's called the pleasure life, right? This is really interesting stuff. And then getting on to the helping others, and this was a self-discovery I made very early as well, Zach, so I feel blessed like you were saying before. Nothing makes me more joyful than helping someone else or watching them flourish, all right? So um, something I pride myself in as a leader is, is when I have coached someone and I've developed them and I stand back and I watch them in action and I watch them knock it out of the park and I've just got this, I don't know, I walk away for, for many days with this, you know, walking on air feeling, right? And it comes from the helping of others. Yeah, for me, it's, there's nothing more powerful than when I see the moment where somebody really, truly realizes that they matter, that, that they do have unique strengths and that they do make a difference. And, and that, and so we talked about external validation a little bit. There is some, there is an important element of this that is externally maintained. So for example, for example, as a community, we give each other the evidence of our significance. 
So it's not necessarily that external validation is wrong. It's what's being validated and how it's being validated. That's really important to maintain meaningfulness because I can believe that I matter, but if I don't experience evidence of my mattering, that also has a short half-life we find. So that's why what you're saying as a leader, that role of maintaining meaningfulness and mattering is really a critical ecological perspective of this. Yeah, I love that. And it's making me think of, we we had Kimberly Abbott, the CEO and founder of a company called Vested, and she's an independent consultant to the United Nations. We had her on the show recently. And the mission of Vested, her organization, is to redefine the definition of millionaire to be someone that impacts the lives of a million people. Oh, I love that. Yeah. So that's beautiful external validation as opposed to, oh, wow, look at your bank account. Exactly. Yeah, and I think that the meaningful validation of one's significance results in intrinsic value. And that's when... When, when I think external validation and community validation is so important, the type and quality of it makes a big difference. You know, you've mentioned social media. I think a lot of what's happening is that in our societies that people are fighting for significance. Uh, you know, social media right now is, is a signal of significance that people are chasing. It's just like the I got a pension was 30 years ago, right? I mean... I think it's just been evolved and been replaced where we're trying to find these signals of our significance because we're not necessarily experiencing in schools and in our organizations and in our families. Um, And I think that that's one of the things that you're seeing is people are yearning for significance and looking, and I think some limiting or self-limiting places to get it. This is an issue that the, um, the search for likes loves on Facebook, TikTok, and Instagram. That's an example of the pleasure life as well. And it's very short-lived and it only matters for a short period of time. And, and then you're going to, to seek more again. The other one that worries me as well, and you brought it up earlier in slightly different words, comparison. OMG. Compar- uh, social media is encouraging you know, comparison to others. Comparison does not bring anyone any joy. No. And what happens is we dilute our understanding of our own uniqueness. Uh, yeah. Wow. That's powerful. You know, when we compare ourselves, we try to morph ourselves uh, and we try to emulate others. But what's really going to bring joy, as we've been talking about, is our unique, how our uniqueness makes a unique difference. And so if we overlook our uniqueness through looking too much at other people, our attention is finite. Um, and we won't have that self-knowledge that we need. I mean, the ultimate security is a positive sense of self-worth. You know, it transcends job, it transcends career, it transcends everything. And that's what I fear most too, is that people are missing out on that ultimate security, which is knowing and believing that I uniquely matter. And everyone desires this. Everyone wants to feel like they're valued and everyone wants to feel like they matter. I think that becomes now the perfect segue to, to this question. I'm going to go out on a limb and say that you and I are lucky, Zach. We've both found our purpose and we get joy from our purpose. I'm going to say that there's a good percentage of our audience are going to be sitting there going, well, that's good for Zach, that's good for Mick, 
but I don't know my purpose. It's elusive. Tell us more about your thoughts on the path to purpose. Mm. First, individually, one of the things that I encourage people to do is to try asking better questions. As you mentioned, I want to go deeper on that. Instead of thinking, what is my purpose? There isn't a phenomenon called purpose anxiety. (laughs) That when people like you and I talk about this, that we get this like, I don't know what it is. So I get so frustrated and I just disengage. I'm not, I'm never going to find my purpose, right? And we identify ourselves with the struggle we're in. It's like when someone goes, you know, you should really eat better. And then you Google how to eat better. And there's a million different recipes and you don't know what to do and you get overwhelmed and you just stop, right? So what I try to advocate for is instead of trying to find your purpose, try to be more purposeful. So one thing that, you know, as an example of a practice that you could start doing and try it for seven days. And even if you don't want to, especially if you don't want to try it, force the action. Is a couple of years ago, I was doing this purpose work. I, I was out in the mornings. I would I was not feeling motivated or energized. I would kind of have this like bad attitude in the morning. And this is why, I mean, this is a constant work in progress. Even someone who studies purpose, this happened. And I started thinking about my internal narratives and what did I do every morning? I looked at my habits. I wake up, I looked at my phone, my calendar, and I would say to myself, what do I have to do today? Can you imagine like if the voice in your head was a motivational speaker? Hey, what do you have to do today, Mick? I mean, it's like, you can wonder why we're in despair a lot of the days. So I just shifted that. I was reading some studies on gratitude and gratitude journaling. And I said, what if I wrote down in the morning, how is what I'm going to do today going to impact other people? And I wrote down their name. So say if it was a meeting I dreaded, I would write down their names and I'd write down like one or two things I knew about them. After like a few days of doing this, my, my whole mindset shifted. Like I couldn't get out of the reality. I'm a very logical person. I couldn't get out of the reality that there were human beings living lives as vivid and complex and as important as my own that were going to be in that meeting. And me dreading that meeting was me actually dreading my ability to make an impact on these human beings. <laughs> and, and once I started shifting that perspective, my attention opened up and I started feeling more motivated. So I think the path to purpose starts with being more purposeful. Start finding ways where you are in your routines to actually see the inevitable impact you make on other people. And as you start seeing the evidence of your significance, you'll start to see themes as to how you uniquely contribute. Do you make people laugh? Uh, do you bring good ideas in meetings? Are you really good at uh, starting a conversation? Those, those are your unique gifts. And so don't overlook those. And, and, and I encourage people to start there. I love this. It was really great. So how does someone then kind of narrow in on what you've called in your book, authentic purpose? Yeah. So one of the things you might do is say, as you're, as you're going on and thinking more purposefully, and I really want to hit home on that. It's very hard to discover your purpose if you don't think purposefully. Because I know many people that have a good purpose statement, but can't tell you for the life of them what it is if you ask them. I know many people that have gone through a find your why, find your purpose course, but they don't think about their purpose until someone asks them, have you done this course? Right. 
So it's very important that this idea of purposeful thinking comes with identifying a purpose. So I know I've hit that home now. But one thing that you might do is, you know, what I call a, a purpose journal exercise. And you don't have to, like, well, however you want to do this, you don't have to write it down. You can, it's helpful, but just ask three questions at the end of every day for, I don't know, seven days. What did I love doing today? Don't be shy and don't think it's stupid either. If you loved going for a run, write it down. If you loved watching a TV show, write it down and what you loved about it. Um, if you loved having conversations and helping friends, write it down. So write down that one list. What would you love to do? Write down another list. What were you good at today? This is very hard for people. We often think at what we screwed up when we end the day. But thinking about the end of the day, what were you good at? Writing some things down. And then write down, how did I impact other people today? At the end of seven days, you'll have 21 lists. And what you're going to find is that there's a theme. There's themes of that intersection. And that can really help you start thinking about what is my unique contribution. Do it for 30 days and you'll have 90 lists and you'll definitely see themes. Wow. I guess I really do love that. I guess I am really good at that. And I guess I do impact other people. I guess I do have purpose. Even though I already am pretty certain about my purpose, I'm going to do this, Zach. I'm going to experiment It's with very this. powerful. Yeah, I teach, I teach sophomores, so second years in college who are trying to just figure out what they're doing. Hmm. Um, I have them do this for a whole semester. And then I actually have them code their responses. So like based on themes. And uh, I've never seen the same intersection of passions, talents, and impact ever in my time working with students. And that's why it's like, it's like your fingerprint and you already have it. But to see our fingerprint, right? We have to put it in the ink and put it down on a piece of paper. Yeah. To see our unique fingerprint as human beings, we have to make it real, make it visible and just start the process of crafting your purpose, stating it, even though it might not be your life purpose, state it, put it in your environment and your environment helps to reaffirm beliefs about yourself. I'm going to challenge everyone in our audience to give this a go. I'm going to run a challenge on our Facebook community group to see. Beautiful. And let me know, let us know how it goes. Yeah, I want to get everyone. That would be really exciting. I, I already practice self-reflection every day, Zach, but it's not those questions. And this will be easy for me because it'll just be adding three additional questions to the ones I already asked myself at the end of every day, which is, uh, you know, what went well today? What didn't go well today? And what would I do differently tomorrow? Yeah. I can add some very purposeful questions to those. And yeah, it's going to be a good journey of, it's either going to be self-discovery because I'll learn something new, keep an open mind and an open heart and an open will about that. Or it could be just a reaffirmation of, yeah, you're right. That is your purpose. You know, get on with it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, very good. I like it. And for people who are really struggling to see any light right now, just even asking like, who helped me today and who did I help today? And even if it was really small, like at the end of the day, um, you'll see that you are a part of a human community, despite the fact that many, many people don't want us to see that because it keeps us consuming social media. Um, you are, you really are. And I believe that. Okay. Everyone in the audience, watch out for the Facebook community group. As this episode goes to air, you'll see the challenge uh, in there and we'll keep Zach informed on how we go. I'm really looking forward to that. In your book, you also talk about 
what purpose isn't. So if I can touch on that for a moment. <laughs> yeah. I often say this to people. If, you, if you're struggling to understand what something is, think about its opposite. So tell us what you think hmm. purpose isn't. Purpose is not just a statement. So you can have a purpose statement, right? But not be purposeful. Purpose is the sense of your authentic usefulness, right? Purpose is not uh, something that, uh, purpose is not an activity. So while we've just mentioned an exercise you can do, it's not, I've done this activity, I, I have purpose, right? Purpose is an everyday approach to living. It's also not, if you lead a company, and you're thinking about company purpose, it's not a brand. Your brand is not your purpose. Your brand should express what's already there um, in terms of what people believe, right? Um, but what purpose is when you look at like, there's this great articulation of this by sociologist Corey Keyes, and he talks about these different types of purposes. So the other thing that purpose is not is it's not equal. I mean, purposes, their purposes are not all created equal in terms of their impact. So you could have a reason for being that is very self-centered. Um, but the type of purpose called authentic purpose that is most powerful and having all of these outcomes that we've talked about is a, a purpose that's directed, meaning there's, there's some language behind it. It's definable, but it's useful to others. And that's, I think, the crux of what purpose is not. Purpose is not a self-serving mechanism, right? It's not something that, let me go find my purpose so I feel better purposes, let me go discover purpose so I can deliver it to the world. And maybe as a result, I'll feel some of that long-term joy. But the danger is, is some people make purpose a destination or an achievement in itself. Um, and if anytime you make something a means to some other end, it, it ceases to be the thing that it is, right? So be wary of making purpose the destination because you'll just discover, you'll ask a now what question at the end of that. Yeah, very good. One of the things you touched on just then was about delivering purpose or on living your purpose. So for everyone in the audience that goes through the exercise and they start refining their purpose and starting to understand why they are, not just who they are, but why they are, how do they go about delivering on that purpose and living it? Yeah, I mean, the start and stop questions are great. If I were delivering this contribution every day, what would I need to stop doing now? And what do I need to start doing? So starting there, can you can start to see some anti-purposeful behavior, right? We all have habits already. It's just like the me getting up and looking at my phone. I, I saw a problem. I said, I wasn't, I didn't feel that energy. What was going on with that existing habit? What might I need to stop doing? What might I need to start doing? It's a great question to ask yourself. Make two column. The other thing is to, to create a vision that's tied to very specific behaviors. So one of the things I like doing is a visioning template called a, a, a feel, a be, and a do where, where everything's connection, connected. So if I were living this purpose every day, if I were living this contribution, using my strengths to contribute in a unique way, what would I and others feel? And write down some feeling words. For example, others would feel inspired. Let's just use that. And then in one column, write down like five of the, the most impactful feeling words that would indicate you're delivering this, your contribution. And then in the middle column, write down, okay, in order to have, have people feel inspired, who do I have to be? So what do I have to be like? What's my approach 
to the day. Now, being quality is my mindset, my approach. So for people to feel inspired, I would have to be affirmative. So I'd have to affirm people. So I have to be an affirmative person. Now, here's where the rubber meets the road, right? The third column is attach that being quality to a measurable behavior. So if Mick was following me around with a checklist and he's like, oh, Zach's being very affirmative today, what would Mick see me doing? So to feel it, if I were delivering my purpose, people would feel inspired. To feel inspired, I would have to be affirmative. And to be affirmative, I would have to show people, not just say thank you to people, but show them the difference that they make through a story anytime I praise somebody. So what happens is, is that oftentimes when we vision, we try to activate something, we think about what it will feel like. We sometimes think about who we would have to be, but we very rarely line it all up and make sure we have tangible, measurable behaviors that we can learn and implement and practice. So that would be another practice, a feel, be, do, uh, visioning and to, to get you to really articulate some measurable behaviors that you can say, did I do that today? Now, here's where this is powerful. One more point on this is that it's powerful diagnostic, right? Because if you're like, I'm not feeling inspired, you can then ask yourself, well, am I being affirmative? Did I appreciate someone today? Oh, no. Well, no wonder I'm not feeling inspired. There's so much to unpack there, Zach. So (laughs) if I'm going to borrow Maya Angelou for a moment and just... I've used this on the show before and people are used to it, but people don't always remember what you say or what you do, but they'll always remember how you made them feel. And that's what really drives what people will think of you in terms of the value that bring. Mm. Now, I'm not talking about self-centeredness here or something, but if, if you really want to make an impact on people's lives, it's how you make them feel that's more important than anything else. So what Zach is saying is the outcome is the feeling. Think about how you want people to feel. The being is how you are and the doing is the actions. I I love this. Oh, that's a great way of saying it. I like leading in with that Maya Angelou quote because some people see that quote and they're like, well, that's great. You know, I get it. How do I do it? And I think it's linking up and starting with how do I want people to feel based on me and my contribution and who do I have to be and what do I have to do? You can also do this on a team or organization level too. I mean, it's a really powerful way to, if you're a leader, vision for your team and get people engaged. If we were delivering on our purpose, how would our stakeholders feel? Who would we need to be? What would we need to do? Great segue, Zach. I want to talk about now common purpose. So, so far you've described purpose as being very individual, that it's like a set of fingerprints and you said that the probability of two different people's exact kind of makeup matching up is like one in seven million I think you said yeah and the strengths literature it's about that Uh, strengths okay right very good and I do believe that every single person on the planet has got their own superpower and some people it takes them a while to become aware of it or discover it right and a collective team is someone that can bring together all of those different collective superpowers. But if every single person on the team has got their own individual purpose, how do you find common purpose as a team? Yeah. So there's individual purpose, which is why me, there's 
organizational purpose, which is why this? So why are we even coming together to do something? What are we trying to accomplish? What's the, and as an organization, I will say this, you can apply the same passion, talent, impact Venn diagram to your organization. What's the energy source in the organization? What are you really good at? And what human problems do you exist to solve? Uh, focusing on the human problem you exist to solve is that's the organizational purpose. It's why this work, why this organization exists. Now, common purpose is where the work comes in because it's where everybody's individual purpose, everybody's individual strengths and the unique difference they make come together to deliver the, the bigger organizational purpose. And that's our common purpose. And that is always shifting and changing because it's dependent upon the unique makeup and contributions on your team. This is why to have a sense of common purpose, people have to know how their strengths make an impact and then how their unique impact ladders up to the organizational purpose, right? And when people can see that, you get that sense of common purpose that we are all here, we have unique differences, and we all ensure that the organizational purpose happens. What I'm hearing here, if I can build it all up, so if we think about the individual and some of the things that you shared with us, that it goes beyond who you are into why you are. As a collective, as a team, you go from who we are to why we are. And then if you start, and you use the word laddering up, and I'm going to replay it and say, let's say, scaling or amplification. So if you can find a, a group of people whose individual purpose is in uh, alignment with each other, you can then have a scaling effect and amplification effect of that purpose. So then everyone on the team is going home each day with a feeling that they lived their purpose and made a positive impact on others. And collectively the team has finished the day feeling that they've lived their purpose and had a positive impact on others. How does that resonate with you? Yeah. And the most important part resonates really strongly with me. And I think the most important part is that people can end the day knowing that they contributed. I mean, it goes back to the original definition of purpose is contribution, right? They know they contributed, but they know also exactly how they contributed. And so leaders who facilitate this really well, don't just like tell people that they matter, but they have the skill set to show them exactly how they matter. And, and, and that comes with the leader's knowledge of people's unique strengths and unique impact, right? Because you can't show people how they matter without understanding someone's individual purpose. And that's where I think all of this comes together. How do you think that all culminates just around the word culture? So my book is titled The Invisible Leader, and it's not because I made that term up. That is a term by a, a woman who is a, who is a phenomenal management thinker in 1928. And she, her name is Mary Parker Follett. And she had a philosophy of leadership that the best leaders aren't people. The best leader is a common purpose. And she called it the invisible leader. She said, leaders and followers are both following the invisible leader, the common purpose. Now, when purpose is the ultimate boss of everybody's decisions, right, as a collective, it creates harmonized energy, right? There's a, there's a clear storyline. 
So when it comes to culture, some of the biggest conflicts I see actually don't have to do with conflicts of what people are doing or how they're doing it. We like to masquerade it as that. It's really a conflict in a belief in why we're doing it, a shared belief in why we're doing it. And so when you have that through line, if you're interested in, if you like watching plays or reading good books, all good plays, all good books, all good movies have a through line. There's some sort of plot line that makes sure that when a character in a play is about to act, they know how to act because they know the through line. They know the bigger plot line. Purpose acts like that plot line. So that's why I think culture, behaviors, values, assumptions must cluster and highly correlate with that through line, with that purpose. And in the absence of that, you get a lot of wasted energy. Um, you have a lot of reaction in organizations versus harmonized energy. So I think that's the function of purpose in culture. I think it's the foundation. It's the through line. It's the plot line. It's the reason why we talk about culture. Uh, and so I believe it's foundational. Love the analogy of the, of the through line or the plot line of either a book or a movie or what, or like you said, a play that's uh, amazing. And or music, I mean, yeah, you can, yeah, yeah. a song, an album, all of these things that humans inherently are drawn to the arts. Yeah. We're drawn to it because it offers us some story. Yeah. Good. And the same is true in organizations. Yeah. That's really powerful stuff, Zach. And I want to play on this harmonized energy. This really caught my attention in your book as well. And maybe I'll, if with your permission, I wouldn't do it without that, but with your permission, I'd love to put a diagram of that in the show notes. Oh, please but do. I'll, but I'll, I'll paint this picture for everyone. Uh, he's, Zach has got this diagram of arrows going everywhere and then with harmonized energy, the arrows are all in alignment and, and having a, a positive direction. One of the things that so many people complain about in their organizations, whether it be the leader of the organization down to the person on the tools, inefficiency. Mm. They talk about not value adding work and parts of the bureaucracy of the organization where some of it's value adding and others people are sitting there scratching their head why am i doing this and it's you know and and talking about that diagram you had with arrows going all over the place that's the inefficient work how do you think we could use common purpose and harmonized energy to address inefficiencies that to be frank, apart from the fiscal impact of those inefficiencies, they drive people insane. They do. And I would say that many of those inefficiencies are the result of initiatives, investment in projects that veer from purpose. Um, it's when an organization becomes distracted by their competition instead of captivated by their purpose, right? We get into that. Like, look at If you look at a case study, you can look at the Microsoft case study. You know, Bill Gates had a vision to put a computer in every home. That was the mission statement. What happened in the mid-2000s? They achieved that. And then what? They started trying to compete with Apple. And then what? They started making really poor research and development decisions. And then what? Teams were being rewarded for efficiency without, being anything to be, without having anything to be efficient toward. So when the current CEO, Satya Nadella, got on board, he went to his board and he asked, why shouldn't I let Microsoft fail in five years? And that was the impetus of the question, right? And he said it was, it was the, the renewing of the soul, the spiritual infrastructure of the firm. 
of that they helped people achieve more. And so all ideas, initiatives, projects were was tested against that meaningful purpose. You know, they changed their KPIs from profit and revenue were now are now third and fourth. Employee engagement and customer engagement are now one and two, right? This I, I'm giving this example as an operational example of how when we go off purpose, when we don't know that bigger through line, we start making these decisions to like as an organization to compete with people, or we, we start making decisions just to create more product because we think it'll bring more money or, and what we get is we get a lot of fragmentation, a lot of lack of belief in why we're doing it. And a lot of what feels purposeless or which is the ultimate enemy of meaningful work is futility. What I'm doing doesn't matter. So I think it, a lot of it comes down to that is making sure that our decisions, our actions, our products, whatever we're doing align with and will deliver that future purpose. Otherwise, you'll get a lot of wasted energy around whatever it is that's not aligned. That's a huge takeaway from this interview, Zach. I'm going to summarize it and say that inefficient work are initiatives that veered from purpose. That's a huge takeaway. I love that. I want to play on it a bit further and see where this takes us. Part of it can also be corporate memory. And corporate memory is very fallible. So the bad part of corporate memory is when people keep doing something because you've always done it that way. So the habitual nature, the corporate habitual memory of we always do this, but people have long forgotten the reason why that was done. And it may have started with a good intent. Maybe a veered from purpose intent, but someone had good intentions of putting that practice in place and it may not have hit the mark, but that reason is long forgotten. And I've, I've got I'm immediately thinking of the admittedly ethically questionable five monkeys study, you know, things about, you know, people just doing things because everyone else was doing it and have completely forgotten why they were doing it. So when researchers look at motivation, energy to do something, the two most significant barriers to experiencing sustained energy, one is inertia. That is the, I'm doing this because someone told me I'm doing this. I've been doing it over and over and I've forgotten why I've been doing it. Some people call it the split. You know, many organizations, when they were founded, their what and their why are very tightly coupled, but then stuff happens. You know, markets decline, they have to compete, all this stuff, and they start focusing more on their what than they do their why, and they get this big split that happens in the organization. Um, But inertia, right? Or Mick told me to do it, so that's why I'm doing it. It happens at the individual level as well. And the second is fear, right? Fear of, if I don't do this, I won't have financial security. Right. Right. If I don't do this, I won't get promoted. And those things actually erode the motivation that the people that are trying to get people motivated actually need. Um, so one thing is to practice the practical applications to look, look through that. Think about that corporate memory. Yeah. Think about how it manifested just every day leadership and tasks with people that, that inertia is present. People are just doing it because they've done it. Yeah, doing it because we've always done it that way is never a good answer in my book at all. And I like this divergence from purpose concept. So 
I was about to say, if you are sitting in an organisation that is inefficient, I've just realised that's 90x percent of the people listening to the show. <laughs> yeah. every, every company's got some level of inefficiency right. is what I'm trying to say. So if you're sitting in an organisation that's struggling with some inefficiency, never accept this is the way that we've always done it as an answer and take Zach's advice and think about has that practice or process diverged from purpose? That's a really good test for everyone to do. Can I add one more element to that, if you don't mind? One of the reasons why inertia develops and corporate memory develops is because people don't feel like they can speak up Ah, and question the corporate memory. Um, And so that's why this concept of psychological safety that I can speak up with new ideas, with feedback, without fear of retaliation is so critical as a mechanism for both meaningfulness, but then also for innovation and efficiency. Um, Because when people don't speak up and they feel like they can't speak up, their ideas aren't heard. The most sinister force in organizations festers, which is learned helplessness, which is when people see there's no point in speaking up against this. So let's just do it as we've done it. And I think that cascades down from the top of the organization to the senior leadership, all the way through middle management. So let's not remember, let's not forget that corporate memory is acted upon by humans. Um, and so creating that open space for feedback and a speak up culture is really essential for mitigating the effects of the, that's how we've always done it culture. Unfortunately, I've seen learned helplessness far too often in my career. Yeah. And what Zach is talking about here is creating a psychologically safe environment where people can speak up, where leaders do remain mindful and they listen without judgment. So when someone raises Mm. their hand and asks a question, that you listen without judgment and then that you follow that. Yeah, and how this relates to purpose and purposeful cultures, right, is, I mean, the, the four elements of culture that we know, I mean, through the research creates a positive purposeful culture are that the, the, that's meaningful. We've talked about this. People know that they matter and how they matter, that uh, they experience more positive emotions than negative emotions. So positive, that they have high quality relationships that are trustworthy. But then the last one is that they can all do all of that in the absence of fear, because the problem is, is that fear and thriving can't coexist. So if people are in fear of retaliation or fear of being of risking their reputation or future promotion, it's really hard for an individual to thrive in a state of fear. It's really, and purpose, being purposeful is a, is a state of thriving. It's a component of thriving. And so again, if you want someone to be purposeful, find their purpose to feel like they matter, it's very difficult to do that when you're in a state of fear. So that, that is why psychological safety is such an important cultural component to creating cultures where people can develop a sense of common purpose. Okay, so we've spoken quite a bit about fear of judgment and fear of retaliation, et cetera. What about, what about the role of social conformance in that? Where does that fit in? Yeah, especially in organizations where you can norm what success is and what it looks like. I mean, we see this with the massive failure of diversity, equity, inclusion in organizations, that this is what a successful leader looks like, sounds like, does, right? 
And so all of a sudden, like we morph our way into it. It's the in-person phenomenon of comparing yourself on social media. So you start to dilute your uniqueness. And when an organization dilutes its uniqueness, it dilutes its resources for creativity. It dilutes its resources for innovation. And then people stand up at meetings and saying, why aren't we more innovative? And it's really because you've collectively diluted individual sense of their own uniqueness. Yeah. There's, there's nothing more powerful and to make you uh, go and innovate than someone telling you, why aren't you more innovative? Yeah, very good. We need to, <laughs> like, I get, I get requests all the time, Nick, and I'm not making this up. I get requests from people. I want to create a more innovative culture to which I always respond to is, well, when's the last time you got a great idea from somebody? And, and they're, they're always like, well, what do, what do you mean? Well, when's the last time someone gave you feedback? Well, what do you mean? And I go, well, that's innovation follows an environment where people can speak up without fear, where they can give their ideas, where they can be creative. It's not something to pursue, just like happiness, it must ensue. Yeah. The other thing you touched on, Zach, is something that's really important to us here at the Leadership Project as well. And that was about the modeling of behavior and what people observe. And one of the things that we often talk about is that people are generally lost about what it means to be a leader when they particularly when they first become a leader or when they go through leadership transitions in their career, there's not a lot out there. Maybe at the executive level, there is some good educational programs about leadership, but it doesn't necessarily filter down to those pivotable, pivotable, that's not a word, pivotal uh, moments in their career when they transition from individual contributor to leader for the first time or from team leader to uh, functional leader, et cetera, et cetera, that there's not a lot of good education out there about what it means to be a leader. So in a vacuum of that, the only thing they can do is they can look, if they want to get promoted, they look in the organization and go, okay, who are the successful people around here? And they start mimicking that behavior instead of being themselves. I agree. Mm. I agree. And uh, one of the problems with leadership in general is that we think of leadership as an idea versus what it means to be a leader. So I'm in, I've, I've heard people say, I'm in leadership now, right? Versus I am a leader now, which is very, a very different way of thinking about leadership as less of an idea and more as an everyday practice. Um, and I think that, yeah, it's the, so what is, what is a leader's craft? You know, like an athlete's craft is the, the fundamentals of what their sport or artist's craft is their art. I think a leader's craft in any field is, the, is human, human beings. That's the craft, right? So all of this stuff that people name some of the fluffy stuff, like purpose, creating, mattering, all of these things that get at people's primal desires as humans, that is the precise craft of leadership as human beings. And what's difficult is I think, and that's why I'm glad people like you exist, because what's difficult is that it's hard for people to turn that craft into learnable skills. Um, and, and I think that's where leader development needs to move to in the future is, is really making sure that these soft skills are conceptualized as hard skills 
100%. Leadership is all about how you relate to other human beings. And right. all the great leaders in the world know that and that's what they practice every day. Yeah, that's the cool. craft, right? The craft is not your product launch. It's not even your team's innovation. It's not your performance. It's not your craft. Getting more out of people is not your craft. Uh, your craft as a leader is to create environments where human beings are noticed, affirmed, and needed, and everything else follows. You've summed that up beautifully, Zach. I love that. That's a really good segue to ask this next question, I think. So building all that together, many organizations struggle with attracting and retaining talented staff. How can we build everything we've been talking today about purpose towards a better ability to attract and retain the people that we want in our organizations? You know, this question is coming at, especially here in the States, a really important time. There's a massive labor shortage. There's more people than ever looking for jobs and unemployment uh, uh, benefits have run out. But yet, despite wages being tinkered with, people aren't taking jobs. Why? People aren't willing to be indignified in the place where they spend 35% of their lives anymore. I mean, full stop. If you are not investing in creating a culture that creates human dignity, mattering, and meaningfulness, you will not retain labor. <laughs> and the, the, the big, this, and I'll say that, that's my, so 10 years from now, if you want, if it's rough, I'm wrong, come back and get me, pin this up. But I think that it becomes more important now than ever when we're coming off the back of a period of collective self-reflection on why we're spending our time and how we're spending our time that we create environments that are dignifying and not just pay well. And, and how do we do that in a recruitment process, right? Well, we, we show people exactly how we ensure that everybody matters here before we show them the $18 wage. We create job description, $18 an hour wage. We create job descriptions that show people the human problems the job exists to solve, the, the bigger pro- problems the job exists to solve, whether you're a fast food worker or you're in the C-suite. And we, we show people the, the strengths we need people to do it. Uh, we invest in people's development. If you come here, you're not just going to be someone on the front line. We're going to invest in you as a human being and help you be a better human being when you go home at night. And here's how. Um, when you we're thinking about the experience that you have when you go home and tell your kids about where you're at, we want to create an experience that you'll be proud to tell them that. If that's what we can do, that's how you recruit and retain talent. Amazing, Zach. So giving people dignity, making sure that they understand that they matter, making sure that they understand that what they do matters, making sure that they understand that they are creating a meaningful impact and then attracting people that have that common purpose, what we were talking before. So an alignment of those individual purposes towards that harmonized energy and you will attract not just attract them, you will retain them. People will work for you and love their job if they think yeah, or no, not think, know that they're making a difference and that they matter. And then I'll add one more thing. Make sure every single person in your organization that supervises any other human being knows that their primary job is to be responsible for the place where human beings living lives as vivid and complex and important as their own spend a third of their waking life. That's, 
that's if everybody in the organization knew that that was their chief responsibility, all of these other things we want, profit, uh, innovation, which aren't bad, all of these things that we do to move forward as organizations, I think would follow. Let that sink in, everyone at home. As a leader, you are responsible for one third of someone's life. One third. That's the responsibility that you're taking on. Everything else comes second. That's really great, Zach. Thank you so much. That, that's going to bring us towards the end of the interview. I, I do have some rapid fire questions I'd like to ask okay, you. Yeah, I'm sure cool. the audience are going to be uh, interested in. So you are a best-selling author yourself and congratulations on that. A wonderful achievement. What about your favorite authors or favorite books? Oh my gosh. Well, I, I, again, I'll go back. I mentioned it numerous times. Anything Mary Parker Follett has written, uh, but then Victor Frankl's works. Uh, Man's Search for Meaning and Yes to Life. And um, from a more modern perspective, uh, one of my books that I read a couple times is Legacy by James Kerr on the All Blacks New Zealand rugby team and the sustainable culture of excellence that they've created. Uh, so those are, those are some of my favorites. So touchy point, Zach. I'm Australian. We ah, have, sorry. We, okay. But I love the All Blacks. I shouldn't say that. But I, I, sorry, I admire the All Blacks. Uh, I shouldn't yeah, say yeah, I love yeah. them. Um, I should have omitted that. Then. No, not, known, at all, yeah. not at all. <laughs> I, I've got to share a story with you here. Uh, between Australia and New Zealand, there is a uh, annual competition called the Bledisloe Cup. Australia hasn't won it since 2003. <laughs> Okay. 2003. That tells you wow. uh, the All yeah. Blacks culture right there. Okay. Yeah, yeah. All right. And do you have a favorite quote? Mm. Um, I think it goes back to Nietzsche that was invoked by Frankel when he said, he who has a why to live can bear almost any how. Wow. Really powerful. And I, I did notice that one quoted in your book as well. Very powerful when I read it and even more powerful now when you said it. Yeah. Okay, what's the one thing that you know now that you wish you knew when you were 20? Mm. That the one thing I have control over is how I make meaning of what's happening to me, not what's happening to me. Yeah, really good. All right, so, yeah, I'll just leave it at that. That's really good, Zach, and something for us all to think about at home. So, so Zach, I'm going to bring us to a close now. I want to thank you so much personally I've learned so much from this experience of getting to know you and from this interview. I know our audience will at home. I'm committing that when this uh, goes to air, we are going to have the Zach Mercurio Challenge about purpose on on our Facebook community group. We're going to see how many people we can get involved to ask those questions every day. We'll pick a time period, 21 days or whatever. Uh, seven days, uh, and we'll uh, we'll go through that, and we'll see what common threads come through, and what we learn about ourselves, and what we learn about each other. Beautiful. Thank you so much, Zach. This has been an absolute pleasure. Thank you, Mick. Thank you for listening to the Leadership Project podcast at mixspears.com. I am your host, Mick Spears. Sound design and editing by Faris Sadek. Social media by Gerald Calibo. And special thanks to our operations manager, Say Spears. We appreciate you and we appreciate your time today. You can catch the video podcast and our series of shorter videos 
by subscribing to the Leadership Project YouTube channel. And you can join the conversation at our Facebook community group. We look forward to bringing you another great interview next week as we learn together and lead together. In the meantime, please do take care, look out for each other, and always remember to challenge the status quo. listening to the leadership project at mixbeers.com a huge call out to faris sadek for his video editing of all of our video content and to all of the team at tlp joanne goes on gerald calibo and my amazing wife say spears i could not do this show without you don't forget to subscribe to the leadership project youtube channel where we bring you interesting videos each and every week and you can follow us on social particularly on linkedin facebook and instagram Now, in the meantime, please do take care, look out for each other and join us on this journey as we learn together and lead together.